extra hour of sleep and is feeling like super ready to just make a million comments in class and be really participative. I heard that from each one of you as we were just getting ready. Um, excited to keep studying Luke with everybody. I say keep studying Luke because we've been in Luke for a while. Um, technically, I snuck into the young adults 18 to 30 class in Ecclesiastes. Um, and then Barry said, hey, did you know you're teaching on Sunday? And I said, that's news to me. So uh, he's out of town this week and asked me to fill in for him. So would love as much context um, from everybody here to make this a good group discussion as we continue. It looks like we have a couple of people who may be visiting with us. Um, we've been going through the book of Luke, specifically through the lens of how would you teach this to somebody who's never read the book before. So. How do you incorporate comments and anticipate questions that somebody with really fresh eyes might have in the text? And so if we can get some practice, maybe even this morning, explaining concepts that we see here, that's just reps that when we take it in a, a game time situation, when we're actually studying with somebody, we'll be better prepared for it. Um, so the section we're going to be covering today, hopefully, is... Um, chapter 13. I think we can get through quite a bit of it, um, but we're going to pick up with the last little bit of chapter 12, uh, starting around verse 54. Um, but before we do, um, just a couple of quick things to point out. Chapter 12 is really emphasizing a couple of themes uh, about readiness and about the coming of uh, the Lord and being ready supposedly at any time. And that theme is going to be continued um, of saying like, are you right with the Lord? Have you repented? Um, you got to be ready. So, so keep that in mind as we come through chapter 13 and look and see like big picture, what themes, because there's going to be a, a few quick hitters of little small parables. So let's see if we can tie a theme through these four or five little parables that we'll, we'll cover this morning. Starting in verse 54, Jesus also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Thoughts on what sticks out to you there? Jesus... Um, calling everybody hypocrites because they know how to interpret the weather. What, what's that about? How would you explain that to somebody? We live in an area where we certainly see, uh, well, recently we saw a hurricane come through the Gulf and people were preparing all along the coast of Florida. What happens if you see those signs and take no heed to say, uh, it's not kind of more it's going to be which people did. What happened? Look at some of the pictures. It's devastating. It's unbelievable. 
So within the scope of the natural world, there are some signs that indicate, hey, this is what you can expect to come, right? And if you pay attention um, to what those signs are, then it's, it's only natural to understand, like, the, they may be hot or it may be rainy. And we can understand that and get our arms around it. But what's the larger point that Jesus takes issue with the people for not being able to recognize? So within Jesus coming and preaching the message of the gospel, there's a big element of like the kingdom of God has come. And there are all of these Old Testament prophecies and historical signs similar to plenty of generations and life experience saying, hey, if if the clouds come like this, it's going to rain. Of saying, hey, when these things happen, the Messiah is going to come. And all of these things are like coming to a head and the people are, are missing the point. Yeah, Wayne. I think it's dramatic change is the theme. And that if you've got 400 years of silence, and then you have a sign of a, a birth that's out of season like John, and then, and then all of these great wonders are happening in your sight. He said, look, you can tell when change is coming. Why can't you tell change is coming? And it's going to be a, a bigger change than it's going to rain, or it's not going to where in the book of Luke did we see Jesus talking about signs of change or signs for this generation? I know we've been in Luke for like seemingly all of 2022, so you may have to flip back a few chapters. What is that reference in chapter 11? Well, it says no sign is going to be given to you. Yeah, this is an evil generation. No sign is going to be given to you except the sign. Um, the son of man is going to be assigned to his generation just like John was to So Jesus is referencing, hey, eventually I'm going to die for the people and be resurrected. And there's going to be this sign similar to Jonah being in the belly of the fish and coming out. Um, but the whole book of Luke is chalked full of jarring questions of are you like who are you who can do this are you a prophet like how are you able to heal and even the people who've opposed Jesus aren't disputing the fact that he's healing they take a lot of issue with the fact that he's healing on the Sabbath so you talk about signs of like radical change miraculous supernatural healings and events and these miracles like those are going to be pretty radical signs that Jesus is who he says he is Um, so particularly for people who are crowds and are coming and should have known better, um, this would have stuck out and been an issue for Jesus where he's saying, you know these basic things, but you're missing the point. Um, 
Does that remind you of anybody else, of you supposed teacher of Israel who can't understand the basic signs you should have known? Adam knows. Maybe in the book of John. Sorry, I put you right on the spot. You gave me really good eye contact. I wish to say the right name back. So I saw Nicodemus. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say Nicodemus. I was like, I know it's not that. I saw Adam like flying to the hoop and toss him an alley oop, and it, the pass was way too high. That was my bad. So, um, so Nicodemus, right? Like he's supposed to be this teacher of Israel who would have really known allegedly what all these signs mean and are coming, and he still had trouble piecing it together. So Jesus is just saying to these larger crowds, you know, hey, like, wrap your head around the change that's coming. Any extra comments on that? I think that's, yeah. I just want to add the idea of, he calls them hypocrites. That carries the idea that they actually know, but they're rejecting it and doing the opposite of it. So it's, it's not just that they can't look at something and interpret it, they're denying it. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree, and I think further to that point, when he talks about like the weather prediction, He's not talking about what we do today. He's not saying, like, uh, because you get the weather forecast, you know that in four days it's going to rain, but you don't, like, you're not reacting now to what's going to happen maybe in the future. He's saying, like, no, no. His comparison is you can see the rain cloud, and you know that as that rain cloud moves this direction, it will rain. That's, that's obvious in nature. It's not, like, future weather forecasting. Like, it's very so here, to, to the hypocrite point that Allison made, like it is, it is obvious, it is clear, there's a choice or a willful ignorance on their part in, in seeing the storm cloud and then reacting like right now. So Drew, the, the, the illustration that really comes to mind for me is like ignoring that engine light on the car. It's on, something's causing it to come on, could be nothing. You choose to ignore it. Chances are something's going to happen. But you're not going to lie. And, and that's it's comparison here because you can see those things it's in their time of the weather. We can see these things in our lives. And we can choose to ignore them. Hmm. But, but we know it's coming. And, and I think the point that Allison is perfect because they they knew Jesus was coming. Yeah, that's going to segue really nicely into the rest of these. Um, next few stories here. Picking up in verse 57. um, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So this seemingly shifts to be like some extremely practical advice. Um, If we push a little bit deeper beyond the idea of, hey, if you get into a dispute with somebody, it's better to settle up with them before it gets deep into a a court proceeding and there might be legal ramifications, what's the larger theme? 
or the larger, maybe spiritual application of this? So I kind of maybe think of the idea of it's first place. Like, shouldn't you hate your brother? First place, like, don't go ask forgiveness from the Lord when you hate your brother. First, don't make it right with your brother. Then you ask for forgiveness from the Lord. Yeah, there's for sure the interpersonal dynamic there. Um, I think there's also a component. Yeah, John. I was going to say he's also captured in the ultimate judge and judgment situation. They're seeing the signs of time and They have no excuse, and if they see the signs and interpret them correctly and see themselves for what they are, then they should be doing everything they can to try to rectify the situation. And this is a perfect example of at first glance it's easy to view these two as like really disjointed and unrelated because you're like, hang on, we're talking about the weather, and now you're talking about like, hey, this is a tip for you when you get in a legal dispute with somebody. But within the broader context of like, the kingdom is here, and the kingdom is coming, and these are the signs that are here, there's going to be a time when you need to settle with the Lord, and that time is coming now and is already here, and, and you need to settle up with Him and make sure you're in right standing with Him before it's ultimately too late. Um, this reminds me of like a scene with an attorney in like a movie or a TV show where he's just like systematically going through and like driving the same point home with a variety of arguments to ultimately reach a point and a conclusion where you're like, okay, like I clearly am guilty of this. And that's the picture that he's trying to paint of you have to come to this decision. Um, back in Luke 12, what we just studied last week, um, the guy who has his land produce a lot of crops and says he wants to store up plans for the future and then if he's not been rich towards God, fool of his soul is, uh, this night your soul is required of you. And if you haven't prepared, you know, uh, what's going to happen to you? Where's your stuff going to go at the end of your life? And then stay, stay ready um, when the master comes back in chapter 12. So that all pulls in together. I think chapter divisions and seemingly like different points can make them seem disjointed, but there is a singular thread that he's pulling through here. Particularly um, for Theophilus, I think that's helpful to keep in mind too. As we're teaching this to somebody, like Luke is writing this in a way to convince Theophilus and to inform him more about this account of Jesus, but he's also leading him to a decision point of like, this is who Jesus is and this is what the coming of the kingdom means. And what are you going to do about it? Like, you ultimately have to 
make a decision. The octopus is an officer He's some kind of a fishing thing. It is one, I think today we think, well, maybe we can bargain with God. We can, we know that we owe this big thing. But if we come to, if they come to uh, Jesus or whoever, the lesson is not, he's going to let you do it your way. You're going to owe it to God. In other words, there's not a really bargain with God. If you don't like it God's way, it's not going to come to It's still going to come. And a lot of people try to do that today. They don't want to. They, they see the truth, but they don't want to grasp the whole of the impact truth because it's not. It's not the way they want it to be. And these people, they want to be their way. And I think the lesson there is it's not going to be your way. You're going to own life. God's plan and his um, consequences of the kingdom coming are a black and white issue. Like you've got to get on, on board or not. Moving into chapter 13, um, we'll read the next few verses here. I'm interested to get y'all's thoughts on this, uh, these next five verses. There were some present uh, at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is one of those um, little snippets where I think we have to read between the lines a little bit to understand what the context is or what the issue that he is trying to address is. What line of, of logic um, do you think that Jesus is uh, trying to correct that these people may have? For sure, there's a personal implication, but I think there's a little bit more. Alan? It's, to me, he's saying the worse sinner you are, the more punishment you will receive. And that's what he's trying to debunk here. It's, it's this, that, he's trying to show him that this is an example, but not everyone receives the punishment based upon the amount of sin they produce. I think we're getting there. We're getting close. Yeah, I, I would I would look at it slightly differently than that. When you consider verse three, unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. All the sinners in the story are perishing. Technically speaking, they're all getting the same. They're all getting the same punishment unless they repent. When he speaks to them about the very different judgment, he's actually highlighting that they have some hypocrisy where they they've taken the point of view essentially. Well, I, I'm better than those people. I don't, I don't have as much to repent for. Or like you yourself have created some gradation as you look at other people. But, but all these people need repentance. The, the punishment's the same. 
the way I, the, the way to be relieved or given grace through that punishment is the same, and it's repentance for everyone. Don't don't look at your own life and because of that, then look at someone else and go, ah, pretty good. That relating of how bad my sin is compared to someone else's sin, and Jesus is trying to paint with a broad brush and just say, nope, you're all sinners, and you're all going to perish, and you all have to repent. The idea here that he's trying to correct their, their lens on the situation is that physical calamity or like really bad situations like Pilate killing people or a tower falling on people is then directly related to like how bad of a sinner that they were. So their sins were clearly worse than mine because they like had this awful tragedy come and like they were killed explicitly for it so i'm not that bad because i haven't had a tower fall on me like with what other book in the bible kind of preaches to that same idea of where people would have had that conception job right where job's friends come in and they see that his life has just fallen to bits and they're like well you have to be the worst sinner on the face of the earth because look at all of this stuff that's happening to you And so that ideology, I think, is still popular to a degree here where people are being hypocritical, where people aren't wanting to fully own up to the reality that they need to repent as well. Um, And so Jesus is setting that mindset correctly of saying just because someone receives a certain judgment today or just because somebody experiences like physical consequences of their sin doesn't mean that your spiritual implications are any different. Belinda. We do this all the time. We do it when we look in our news feed and we see something awful that's happened to somebody. We jump to that well, they must have. They must have. And the only reason that I can think of that we do is because it makes us feel better about sex, which is exactly what you say you cannot do. Yeah, I think we'd all be served really well if we could continually remember that we're all even being recipients of grace and walking with the Lord now, like we are just as lost without Jesus, right? We are all equivalently just as bad of sinners. Um, yeah. Uh, I wonder if uh, is it possible that, you know, we read about the Pharisees and rules like they can't walk more than seven eighths of a mile on the Sabbath, and they still felt like that person's sin is worse than mine. It's possible that they can look back as they we see examples in the Old Testament, for instance, where, you know, as I talked about, where he means was that he clearly did something that offended God and was killed for it. Maybe that if I could do their deal, they were killed for it. So I know that we're all bad, or we're going to be Yeah. There's maybe even a degree to that of well, we know they sinned because they were killed and this awful thing happened to it, but like, I haven't been killed and I haven't had a tower fallen on me, so maybe I didn't even sin, right? Not that we haven't ever, but that we can rationalize that we're, we're living in a way that's maybe not even that bad within this context. Um, yeah? I think to, to Louis' point, though, I, I do think that the, the Pharisees looked, they didn't create the rules or the hedges, everyone talked about it, around the actual revelation of God and try to be more strict about what they did because of evil hearts. They, they may have ended up in that position, but, but none of them, certainly when they started, set out to create a bunch of rules to make it hard for everyone to serve. And instead, 
they, they were trying to make certain that they didn't end up like Uzzah or Nadab and Abihu. So they created, we're going to make certain that no matter what happens, we aren't sinners. And, and so their, their motives, at least in, in many ways, were likely quite, quite righteous. Um, it's just their application of those rules to other people. Um, like we can, I can be stricter than, than God's law on myself. Um, it's when I tell you that you're a sinner if you don't know do what I tell you after the that's, that's where you think I'm Yes, the, the binding of those things on other people. Um, let's move on because I think we can, we can pull a, uh, a thread through the rest of these if we can get through it. There's another here that I think yeah. is important to share, really not on our topics, but we come to the class, yeah, we go ahead, and we'll just pass over but we come to Pilate when we see him experience this interaction with Jesus. And we think that he's a reasonable man. But this little snippet here gives us maybe a little insight into really what kind of a man Pilate was. He's massacring people as they're offering their sacrifices and offering them on the altars with their sacrifices. He's having a soldier do this. No, yeah, I think that's details a... about this. Yeah. But that's the kind of man he's willing to do. These kinds of atrocities occur. And he's the man that Jesus appears before. And, and he can grant him his freedom. But he's not a man that seems to lend himself to that. Mm-hmm. So it's really remarkable when you think about the interchange of Jesus Pilate compared to what we read here about what Pilate is capable of doing. Um, anyway, just wanted no, to that's say that. No, that's actually, that's a super helpful point within um, teaching this to somebody who's never read it before. Because when I read this, I did not know what Pilate mingled their blood with the sacrifices meant. And I was like, I, that's just a, it's not super on the nose that like he killed people while they were sacrificing. And so I think that's a helpful point to, to emphasize because then it does, it totally shows the contrast with his interaction with Jesus later. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, so verse, uh, picking up in verse six. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. So at this point, we've, we've seen like four or five of these parables in a row. How would you incorporate this into our theme of what we're seeing of what Jesus is talking here? I think for sure this can be applied to Christians. Up to this point, I don't think technically, I think it would have been more about the Israelites before technically Christians. Um, But he's saying people who are following the Lord, right, like you have to be seeking and be obedient and there's this purpose. And if you're not delivering on that, then you're sinning and you're missing the mark. And like there is judgment coming for that. 
And there's a reckoning coming for that. And I think that ties in just lockstep with this next thing that, hey, you're going to need to repent. And there is a time coming where you may have a little while where you can do something about it, but then eventually, if you don't, like, here's what's happening. Here's what's going to come. We're going to cut that tree up. We're going to remove it. And so he's continually just pushing and emphasizing to the people their need to take action on this. And one man's intercession kept them from being blocked. Now, here we have a servant, the virus, who is interceding with the guy that has the authority to say, no, that's it. But yet, because of that, of that um, supplication, he says, no, we'll give them a little more time, but it's not going to be forever. And, and, and there is a, a lesson to these leaders. Yeah, you know, I've been patient, but it So Barry talks about this sometimes. Um, the, especially for someone with fresh eyes on the text, it would be really easy to read this and think like, man, Jesus is coming and like he is just being so harsh to all these people. And he's coming and he's talking about judgment and he's talking about how sinners are going to be punished. And there is just like, it's a pretty doom and gloom message here. He's talking about chopping up trees and burning them down and getting thrown in jail until you've paid the penny. And he's calling everybody hypocrite. Like that tone, if you're not careful, can seem dominant. But the reality is the crux of his message is that the kingdom of God is here and there's good news and you need to repent because you can be saved from this. Like there is a chance to repent. There's an emphasis to repent because the kingdom is here, right? And so like that's a, a slight, maybe subtle thing, but I think it's really important as we're teaching people about Jesus to emphasize that he's coming, but like in the same way that he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and bring not peace but division. Like, that's a hard statement. And how do you reconcile that with, I don't want anybody to perish, and I want all to be saved, and I have compassion on sinners, right? And God's long-suffering extension of time so that more people can come, uh, come to Him. So does that, does that make sense? Like the idea that Jesus is talking about judgment, but... The judgment's going to come no matter what. And these people are already lost because of their sins. So the message isn't exclusively that, hey, judgment is coming and all hope is gone. It's instead, you need to repent. Because if you don't, this is going to happen. But this is going to happen either way. And repentance is now on the table and can lead to new life. But it seems like it's not talking to people who already feel bad about their sin and beating them into the ground. These are people that don't feel bad enough yeah. that he's raising awareness there That's a great point. How Jesus interacts with 
like blatant sinners or Gentiles or people who shouldn't have necessarily known any better is radically different than how he treats the Pharisees or the teachers of the law who said, hey, I should have known better and I, I didn't act in that way. So that's great to point out. Yeah, Ken. I see all of for sure yeah that that element of mercy is um, can't be separated from the message of repentance chip off I was thinking, so as, if we were teaching someone who's never been familiar with any of the scripture, certainly not studied Luke before, it, it might be it might be helpful to point out why he would pick a fig tree as a as the illustration. This is a very very common Old Testament illustration. Jews knew that when God spoke about them as a nation, he he used the fig tree to represent them. So in the Old Testament, several places he talks about the fig tree and what he's going to do with the fig tree. It's throughout several books. So he's using this because we know who he's talking to. As you know, I was talking to people that may be a little more blatant about their their ignorance isn't the right word, but they're choosing to be ignorant about, about Jesus and who he is, not recognize him as the Savior, the Son of God, and they're belligerent about it. So he uses this reference to a fig tree. That's going to make sense to every single Israelite in that audience, which is primarily who he's talking to. But I'm talking about you guys. And God's going to be patient for a time. I think both times, ends and ways were great. He's going to be patient with you for a time. But you're going to get caught up like all the others who don't accept this grace, this mercy. And there will be a time when this mercy and patience ends. And that's why I think he puts a, a timing on here. Because I think it's going to happen in one year. But the, the illustration is, let's give it one more year. Let's give it one more season. How long is a season we've got? So how much risk do you want to take? So this message was purely for those who were out the audience that's helpful to put into context this would have been something they could imminently relate to and it seems like I'm going to give you six different examples of this principle so that maybe if the first five don't relate to you maybe you'll start to get the picture right maybe one of those six will be something that you can latch on to and be like I get it now like I didn't really get it um, until you said that okay so this next section um, is really kind of a, a shift from emphasizing the importance of immediate repentance, um, but it carries through the theme of hypocrisy um, and of just a misplaced emphasis on the things of God. So picking up in verse 10, um, now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, 
Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the, mange, uh, from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Thoughts on that? What would you emphasize to somebody um, who's new to the text? Anything you'd want to clarify? Anything you'd want to emphasize? This really helps the narrative that you mentioned before about how he's making the process be kind of harsh. You know, it's really adds a lot more context to who the harsh ones really were in this world. And then, like, like you were saying before about just there is an abundance of mercy that's being, that's being displayed here. Though there are things that need to be heard by these people, it's coming from a place of, of a shepherd who protects his sheep and a God who follows all people, who take all people back to. Absolutely. I think Adam's point that he was making about um, above and beyond the laws of what God set in place, which the primary emphasis on the Sabbath was to keep it holy. It was like that was the crux of the Sabbath, is to keep it holy, to worship, to revere, to rest, to commune with the Lord. But the Pharisees, and likely from good hearts, had put in place these extra rules that they had decided that determined like how many steps you could take before it was considered work, like how much weight you could lift. They were really specific and missing the emphasis of the point of keeping this day and this time holy before the Lord. And so that culture had permeated like these people so much that when this woman who has been suffering for 18 years of this crippling disability is miraculously immediately healed, the thing that jumps out to them is not the fact that she was immediately healed and she's glorifying God and she's able to stand up straight, but it's, do you know what day of the week this was on? And, and can't you just see Jesus like just throwing his hands up in the air and being like, are you kidding me? This is what you choose to emphasize about what we just did here? Like you can see the anguish of, man, you guys are missing the point. And so that, you hypocrites, goes in and talks about the fact um, that, hey, you're okay with going to an animal that you've got tied up and loosing them and taking them away and taking care of them, giving them a drink. The Greek word, this was interesting in just studying for this, the Greek word for untie in verse 15, that you could untie his ox, is the same Greek word that he uses in verse 16 for this woman being loosed or being untied. So he's, he's doing a little wordplay here. And saying, you're okay untying an animal to go get him a drink, but you're not okay 
with me untying this woman from this crippling, you know, disability? I think it's also important to emphasize he, he like tries to really highlight the contrast between you would do this for an animal, but a daughter of Abraham, somebody who's one of God's people, somebody who's one of your own, you're not okay with her being healed in this context. Um, just really trying to, to cut to their hearts. That's a really good question. Um, the question was, how do you differentiate this being called a disabling spirit and then Satan being referenced as like the, the causer of this, right? Um, and does that mean then, can you extrapolate from that that like any physical illness is then like some sort of spiritual oppression? And how do you go through that? Yeah, do I have the spirit of flu or more recently the evil spirit of COVID or like what does that mean, right? Like, and I think we can see certainly within this period of time um, that there was a lot of physical oppression that was happening as a direct result of spiritual forces. So Satan and his um, loose word is teammates, but ministering angels, the people who are like working alongside him, the forces of darkness, being able to um, oppress people in these ways. Like there's a lot of examples within the context of that. I don't think it's a one-to-one comparison, like especially if we were to extrapolate that to now and say anytime that I'm feeling crummy, that that's automatically coming from there. That's not an immediately great answer, but it's a really good question and probably one that I'd want to articulate a little better, not on the spot, but yeah. I think there's two concepts to consider. One is kind of where you went, which is uh, the New Testament is very clear that there are um, spirits who are doing work with Satan and they're doing terrible things. What they don't understand is their activity and Jesus overcoming it is fundamentally the signs that he is the Messiah. So Satan doing things, trying to be active, trying to control what's going on, doesn't understand that he leads these these folks, these spirits to do these things. And instead of it leading to failure for God, it actually is what paves the way to make it really, really clear and plain that Christ is the Messiah. Now, I think when you compare that to what about sickness? What about flu or COVID or cancer or whatever? Well, the, the New Testament is very clear through the Gospels that there are people who are sick because of spirits, but there's also lots of people who are just sick. Interestingly, both of those things are because of Satan. Sickness exists because we sin, but because sin happened. Sure. I'm not saying sickness happens today because I directly sin and that creates sickness in me, but sickness exists as a thorn that came because of man's sin. In, in the Gospels, when Christ has the power to overcome both, in both ways, he is showing that he has complete and total power over life and death and over, over these spirits and over all the heavens. 
Can I ask a question about that? Because it brings up like the text. Whenever we pick the one side, either it's the right way or the wrong way. The wrong way says this is why you're ill. You're ill and you're sick or whatever. It's like, okay, so are we being judged? Like, is that why we get sick? Or is that why we don't? <laughs> Let's talk about that later. <laughs> Only because the bell's here? It's a good question. I'm not trying to run from the question. It's a good question. Um, because whether or not that is a spiritual illness within your heart versus a literal physical illness of if you take the Lord's Supper in a, a way that you're not properly discerning the body, does that mean that like you're going to have a heart issue? Or does it mean you're going to have like an internal spiritual heart issue? And this is why you're sick. Thank you guys for your comments. And class, Barry should be back next week.